We can read books, take classes, and seek out advice, and yet feel inadequate when we become parents. J.D. Greer shares a little bit of his parenting story in his talk, Ready to Launch, How Mission Shapes Children. He says that parents should have a missional mindset in raising their children. Here's J.D. explaining why such a mindset matters. With marriage, I felt really good. I'd done all the premarital counseling I'd been advised to do. I'd read all the appropriate books. Veronica and I were crazy uh, in love with each other. So what more was there to know? I figured I was just instinctively an expert at loving her. Uh, Shortly after I got married, Danny Aiken, who was a personal mentor of mine and actually speaking here tomorrow morning, he told me, he says, you know, you're probably not as prepared for marriage or for your life with her as you think you are. Uh, He said, in marriage, you see, he said, men are a lot like dogs and women are a lot like cats. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, how do you make a dog happy? He said, uh, I said I he said, three things. You feed him, you praise him, and you play with him. That's all your wife has got to do for her marriage, and you're going to be a happy man. He said, how do you make a cat happy? Nobody really knows. Um, <laughs> but whatever you did the first time is probably not going to work the second time, he said. So, you know, you are not prepared for this. I, I'm reminded of that because I feel pretty unprepared up here to be talking about parenting, just to be totally honest. Uh, the most confident that I was as a parent was before I had kids. Uh, I was a pastor for a few years before I had kids, and I'd read four really good books on parenting, and I'd developed four really good sermons on parenting. I had no kids and four great sermons on parenting. Now I have four kids and no great sermons on parenting, uh, even though I sometimes fake it. So I'm going to do my best this evening to let the scriptures speak and uh, try to work uh, out of them. It's Psalm 127. If you have a Bible and you want to take it out and turn it on and scroll down to Psalm 127. My pastor growing up used to say the sweetest sound he got to hear was the ruffling of the pages as people open their Bible to God's. I I never get to hear that as a pastor, and I'm kind of bitter about it. I get get to see the warm glow of God's word on people's faces, which I'll take it, but if you got a paper Bible, make a lot of noise of that thing, if you would, so I can hear it. Um, Psalm 127, many Christian parents seem to share my sense of unpreparedness when it comes to parenting. In a recent survey, 85% of Christian parents admitted that while they acknowledged they were responsible for their child's spiritual development, I think I have this up here somewhere for you, the vast majority were not personally engaging in any activities that might guide their children to spiritual maturity except for taking them to church. So again, they admit that they are, are responsible for it, but, but as far as what to do with that responsibility, other than dragging them to church, they're just not quite sure. As we have seen already in this conference and several of the, of the talks that have been given, we're in somewhat of a crisis point in regards to parenting, and until we correct this in the church, all of our efforts, honestly, to engage the culture are going to fail. That's why I was a big fan and very excited to hear um, when they announced the theme of this year's conference because it's really good for us to talk about the hot-button issues and talk about how we're going to engage in politics and some of the many discussions that are going on there. But, you know, until it actually gets to the home, we're not actually making that much of a difference. I had the privilege of growing up in the home of two brand-new Christians. My parents both came to faith in Christ the year that I was was born. Uh, You know, some people get saved and other people get really saved. And my parents got really saved, and they started to go to a church that emphasized basically discipleship meant being there at the church all the time. Uh, They actually had a phrase, three to thrive. If you want to thrive spiritually, you're there at least three times a week. That, of course, did not include all the potlucks and inspirations and vacation Bible schools and revival weeks. I always say the only drug problem I ever had was getting drugged to church day after day after day. 
But in the midst of all that, my father taught me the gospel, and he taught me what it meant to live in response to the gospel, and that has to be where it starts. This is not my message this evening, but almost all of the passages that are written about parenting in the Bible are directed toward men. I mean, I think of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. When he gets to the part where he talks about parenting, he actually specifies fathers. I am talking to you. The entirety of the book of Proverbs, which is probably the best collection of parental wisdom that is anywhere gathered together in the Bible, is a father writing to his son. As it stands, most guys, most Christian guys, feel like they're good dads if they provide food and shelter for their families. Really? That's the standard? It's like a friend of mine says, possums give their offspring food and shelter. Is that the bar we really want to set for manhood and for good fathers? Most dads, most Christian dads are on autopilot. It's not that they're bad dads or they're leading their children in the wrong direction. It's that they're simply on autopilot, kind of watching things happen around them. I always tell the men at our church that if they put the same initiative and creativity and planning and intentionality into their jobs that they put into their family, they would be fired a hundred times over. And we're going to have to have a generation of dads who get off of autopilot and take responsibility for the primary thing that God has given them to do. A recent study shows that if a child is the first one to come to faith in Christ in a family, then there is a 3.5% chance that everybody else in the household is going to get saved. It's going to follow. If it's the mother that is the first one to come to faith in Christ, there is a 17% chance that everyone else in the family will come to faith in Christ. If the father is the first one to come to faith in Christ, there is a, get this, 93% chance that everybody else in the family is going to come to faith in Christ. I really don't think I'm over-speaking or hopefully not going outside of the Bible when I say this, but I really believe the key to the whole thing is the father. And if we turn this thing around, it's going to be because the fathers get engaged. Psalm 127 is a chapter in the Bible that is written specifically about parenting. Um, I'm going to show you here that it's written to two different audiences um, that it has in mind uh, that are reading and listening to this psalm. One audience is the parents, and the other audience is the entire believing community. This psalm was read at the birth of every Jewish baby. It was read to the entire family. It was also called, you can see it there in your Bible, a song of ascents which means that it was sung by pilgrims as they ascended the road to Jerusalem together during their annual pilgrimage. The whole traveling community, not just the parents, but the entire community were to sing about their responsibilities that they possessed to the next generation. So we're just going to walk through this psalm, and I'm going to try to show you a few things that I've learned as a parent out of it. Uh, Full disclosure here, I actually produced a study on it, uh, small group material. I feel tacky saying that because uh, we're not trying to move merchandise here. Um, I will tell you that all the proceeds from the sale of that go to feed hungry children. Uh, Their names are Karis, Ali, Raya, and Adam, so you can feel good about anything you purchase, but... Uh, The bottom line um, is that a lot of what I refer to today has elements in it that I'm going to just painfully sort of skip over and uh, frustratingly skip over. And you may feel like you want to go deeper. It's certainly not the only resource. I wouldn't even say it's the best resource, uh, but it's certainly something that you could go deeper in if it uh, was something that worked for you. So Psalm 127, here we go. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. 
are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. This psalm is going to reveal, I think, our, first of all, our desperation in parenting. Secondly, our goals in parenting or our goal in parenting. Thirdly, our resources for parenting. And then lastly, our hope in parenting. So just one at a time. Number one, our desperation in parenting. Our desperation in parenting. Psalm 127 opens with the phrase, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In order for a house to endure, God has to be the one that builds it. Most parents have what I would call the Beatles philosophy of parenting, and that is all you need is love. If you got love, then everything else is going to turn out fine. The problem with that is I know parents who love their kids truly, madly, and deeply, and they are terrible parents, and their kids reflect that. Love is not enough. I'm not downplaying love, of course, just telling you that there's a lot more to it. In order for kids to become what God wants them to become, they need to have the mind of God and they need to have the heart of God so that they can be built by God so that they are a house that endures. Developing the mind of God means teaching them what God has revealed in his word, which we're going to talk about more here in a moment. But they also need the heart of God, which is really frustrating for a parent because we are absolutely powerless to teach them and give them the heart of God. The Bible teaches that our kids have more than an information problem. They've got a heart problem. They are spiritually dead. Their loves are disordered. And there is no amount of love of yours and no amount of teaching of yours that can change that. Only the power of God can change that. At our church, I always compare it to this. Um, when my um, oldest daughter was four years old, she had a fascination with balloons. She loved balloons. So for her four-year birthday, I decided to go get um, uh, it was about 75 balloons. And I spent the entire afternoon blowing up these balloons and just covered the entire kitchen floor with all these balloons. And I thought she was just going to be over the moon about this. She walked in, picked up the balloon, dropped it, and said, what's wrong with these balloons? They're broken. Um, she liked the balloons at Red Robin that they floated. And I said, well, no, no, these balloons are much better. Daddy blew them up literally all day long. Um, and they're good for games because you can play, you know, smack the balloon and keep it up. And she was like, that's the lamest thing I've ever heard. Uh, I want the balloons that float on their own. There's two ways that you can keep a balloon afloat. One, if it's filled with your breath, you can, um, you can smack it. That's the only way to keep it off the ground. That is sort of uh, an analogy that is, uh, I feel like when I teach our people or most parents teach their children, that's kind of what we're trying to do is you're trying to smack them spiritually so that they behave. You know, so the people come to our church and I, you know, I just smack them about something in the week. They, you know, they, they go out and they do whatever, give money or witness or read the Bible or whatever. And they come back down the next week and they're sort of, you know, sagging back down. And what they pay me to do is I smack them again. This is our relationship. I smack them, they float. Um, that's a very frustrating way. It's a very frustrating way to live. It's a very frustrating way to parent. There's another way to keep a balloon afloat. And that is you fill it with helium and it floats on its own. No smacking required. Well, see, what the Bible is pointing us to is a, a change in the heart, a helium in the heart that will transform them, that leads them without the smacking that is required from the parent. Um, the gospel is the helium that transforms the heart so that you begin to do righteousness because you love righteousness. You see, God is not just after obedience, and the wise parent is not just after obedience. We're after a whole different kind of obedience, and that is the obedience that grows out of desire, a heart that does what is right because it loves what is right, a heart that obeys God because it craves God. Or another analogy that, that, that I'll use with them is there's a, um, there's a certain kind of metal. I can't remember exactly what it is, but if you bend the metal and you, you, know, you can get it down to a point, it's going to do one of two things. Um, you either put so much pressure on it that it breaks, or when you take your hands off of it, it'll snap back up to its original position. 
And I'm like, this is kind of what we're trying to do with our children. We're putting all this pressure on them. And one of those two things happens to them spiritually. They either get to, you know, where, 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 when the, the pressure is not there and the, 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 you know, we're not there observing their heart goes back up into the original shape that it wants to be in, which is, you know, whatever their friends are doing, or they get to a place where they snap spiritually where they're just like, I hate this. I hate all these rules. I hate you dragging me to church all the time. I see that over and over played out in our church. There's another way if you can do it. And that is if you heat the metal, then you can get it into a condition where you can arrange it in whatever, whatever shape it's supposed to be in. The gospel, the power of God, the Holy Spirit is the heat that transforms the metal. And you and I are utterly powerless to do that. And at every parenting conference, that needs to be written large, probably somewhere in the platform is, apart from him, we can't do anything. There is no technique that can guarantee the right heart to be developed in our children. That is something that only the new birth can, can do. And unless the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. One of the most helpful pieces of counsel I ever received about being a parent was from another mentor, a guy named Larry Osborne. And he said, he said, he said, you know, I've watched you for a while. I've watched you as a dad. I've watched you as a pastor. He said, let me tell you what your primary problem is. He says, you and a bunch of guys like you who are pastors, he said, you want to primarily pastor your kid and not be their dad. He said, I'll tell you what the difference is. A pastor is always telling them what they're doing wrong and how to fix it. A dad is just excited about who they are. And he said, your, your kids have got to develop the love for these things that you want them to have, and they're not going to develop it by you always telling them, be excited about this and do this. He said, you're going to have to let the Holy Spirit grow that in their heart, and it's going to happen through the soil of unconditional love as you demonstrate to them the gospel. What your child most needs to experience is the excitement of their heavenly Father for them, and they're going to experience that through you. If you focus on their heart and not their behavior, it's going to change your approach to everything in parenting. It'll change how you discipline. It'll change how you pray. It'll change what you celebrate as success. This is one of those areas, I'm telling you, we could spend the rest of the next eight sessions on that. And I've got to just leave it right there. But it shows us the desperation that we have that the psalmist points to. Unless the Lord does it, then we're wasting our time. And number two, we're going to go on, though, to number two, our goal in parenting. Our goal in parenting. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. This verse explains to us the purpose for which God gave us our kids. They are like arrows. What is the purpose of an arrow? Jim Elliott, who was explaining to his mother and his father why he was going to leave a very promising career in the United States and go serve the Lord in South America, where um, he would eventually be martyred, he used this very text, and he said, what is the purpose of an arrow? What is the purpose of a Christian with an arrow? Is it not to pull it back on the bowstring of faith and launch it as far into the heart of the enemy as you can get it? He says, you have been successful as parents. I know it is heart-rending that I'm leaving. But you can know that you did what you were supposed to do because you pulled me back over the lifetime and you sent me out into the mission of God. Our kids were given to us for the purpose of sending them into the mission. And that changes how we think about rearing them. You see, when God designs a kid to be an arrow and instead we treat him or her like a piece of furniture or a piece of art that we plan to keep in our house... Not only are we stunting their development, but we're also discouraging them from finding God's plan altogether. Because the heart of discipleship is discovering the role that you have in God's mission. Reggie Joyner, in a book called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity, he points out that we live in a safety-obsessed culture. Some of that is good. We obviously have to take care of, uh, of our children. But he says this, in that kind of culture, it's possible 
to hold on to our kids so tightly that we forget that the ultimate goal of parenting is to let go, right? Many of us are fine if our children never climb a mountain as long as it guarantees they'll never get hurt. But what if your children were made for the mountains? The ultimate mission of the family is not to protect your children from all harm, but to mobilize them for the mission of God. He tells the story of a dad who approached a pastor that he knew who was really concerned about his daughter. His daughter in her teenage years was making some really, what he thought were really bad decisions. She started to dress goth, and she was not interested in spiritual things, and she was dating a guy who was bad news. So he approached this pastor and just said, you know, what counsel do you have? Well, the pastor knew this family, and like many church families and in our churches, was more of a consumer of the church, more of an attender on the weekend than really a, a participant in the mission. He said, well, I think all you're seeing is that your daughter is choosing a better story. The dad said, well, what do you mean? The pastor explained, we're all designed to live inside a story. Your daughter was designed to play a role in a story. In the story she's chosen, there's risk, adventure, and pleasure. She is desired. In your story, she's yelled at, she feels guilty, and she's unwanted. She's just choosing a better story than the one that you're providing. This dad, inspired, went home to the church, found out about a small village in Central America that their church um, worked with and needed an orphanage, and it was going to cost about $25,000, and nobody taken on the project. And he said, our family's going to take that on. And he tells a story. I brought a, he got his family in the room, and he brings out a whiteboard and presents them with a problem and says, we need to figure out how to, how to accomplish this. He said, everybody in my family thought I'd lost my mind. He said, but after I stood there long enough in awkward silence, they all started to come up with ideas, including my daughter. And then eventually, after talking over with three or four nights, we, we said, well, if we're really going to do this, we're going to need to go see the village. So we went down there. He said over the course of eight or nine months, eventually her heart got engaged. And in a few months, without much direction from me at all, she had ditched the boy. She started to dress more normally, and she got engaged in the church on her own volition. The point is, kids are given to us as arrows, and when we treat them like accessories to our lives, we are discouraging them from discovering faith altogether. Because the call to follow Jesus, listen, and the call to mission are the same call. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, which means there's no separation between the call to follow Jesus and the call to get engaged in the mission. Well, you can't really accept Jesus without also accepting the call to engage in mission. And that's how we should raise them. And when we don't, we stunt the development of their faith. Again, join her one more time. When there's nothing challenging or adventurous about your style of faith, you begin to drift toward other things that seem more interesting and meaningful. At our church, we've really tried to instill this from the beginning into our culture of how we engage in family ministries, building, sending, sending into all that we do. It starts with a thing we call parent commissioning, which is, I guess, similar to baby dedication, which is similar to infant baptism. But, um, you know, we, uh, we, we moved it all the way to um, parent commissioning and uh, uh, you know, what we do is realize you can't dedicate a baby to God. The baby already belongs to God. What we're really dedicating is the parent who is really making a covenant, like Psalm 127, with the community and with God that they're going to raise this child for the purpose that God gave them the child. And so, you know, they go through a covenant that they make about how they're going to help their child discover their role in the mission. And, and there's a kind of a part, and it's probably a little overly dramatic, but we intend for it to be that way where, you know, we say what this means, what this means is that when your kid is 22 years old, and they feel called to Afghanistan, you are not going to stand in their way. You're going to be their biggest cheerleader. And you're going to say, thank God that you're doing what God has told you to do, and it's painful for me, but this is the arrow that God gave to me, and I am delighted to see it used in the mission that God has given. 
We design our facilities at, at our church. They're decorated like an airport because we just want sending in the bloodstream. And we tell parents, you got to teach your kids. The question with your child is no longer if you're called into mission. The question now is only where and how you are called. We try to facilitate family mission trips as much as we do any other kind of mission trips. My kids will tell you they point to the most spiritually meaningful things that we've ever done. One of them is what we did, la- probably the most of all, what we did last summer. My church had been there for about 14 years, and um, the church said, you know, do you want a sabbatical? You've never taken one, and I don't have anything against sabbaticals, but I said, you know what I really would love to do? is I'd love to take about seven or eight weeks and just go live overseas with some of our families from our church that are church planning over there. And I'd love for you just to provide this for my family, just to go live over there and to actually live in Zululand in, in, in South Africa and let us just be part of the mission. I won't preach over there. I'll just go house to house like they do, and I'll tell people about Jesus. Um, seeing them engage in that mission, they will still go back and talk about that, about things they see and learn as they are serving God. Our children volunteer on Sunday morning. We try to really create that culture. And honestly, for my kids, that seems to impact them spiritually as much as any of the Bible study lessons that we, uh, uh, that we do. Um, that is our goal in parenting. Number three, our resources in parenting. Psalm shows us our resources in parenting, which are the home and the church. I mentioned at the beginning that this psalm had two different audiences. One were parents, and the other was the larger community. Many of the classic parenting passages in the Bible are the same way. For example, Deuteronomy 6, you can't really tell if he's talking to parents or if he's talking to the whole community, and the answer is both. That corresponds to the two, let's call them gardens, in which God grows the child. The two gardens are the home and the church. Let's just talk really briefly about each, the home. The home is the primary place that God intends for kids to hear the gospel. That is where they can see it lived out most authentically, which is the best way of learning. And it's also the only place they can really have it easily applied to their lives. This is what Moses meant when he told Israel, Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, as you do life, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as front lips between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You know, I try to tell parents at our church that we have, as a church, at most, about 104 hours a year with their kids. You, as parents, have 8,736 waking hours every year. For gospel root to really take hold, that kind of teaching has to occur in those 8,736, not just the 104 you share with the church. In the home is where you can, the only place really, you can apply the gospel to various situations, brokenness, questions, pain, temptation. The analogy that, 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 that I use with parents is it's like air war and ground war. You know, the they, military strategists know that if you're going to really take over a territory, you can have the mightiest air force in the world with the most powerful bombs, but you're never really going to root out the enemy. You can drop bombs, you can carpet bomb the whole thing, though there's not a single plant on it and not a single living thing, but they're just in caves underground. And you're going to have to send in your ground troops after that to root out from the caves and the, um, the, you know, the, the places they're hiding the, um, the enemy. Well, in the same way, I can stand up. What I do every week is I stand up and I napalm the congregation with, um, with, with, with gospel bombs. And that's great. The youth pastor does it there. But in order for it to really root out the idols of the heart, you've got to apply the gospel with foot soldiers. And that means in the moment, in life, as you go about the way. Very little of our teaching happens on schedule. Our, our family does devotions. We, we try to be, you know, we're, we try to do it at least a couple times a week. 
I always tell people in our church, and I don't know how you'll hear this, but if you were to sit in our family devotions, they are not that inspiring. I, they honestly aren't. I, I'm trying my best, um, but I get, I, get, I get a bunch of one-word answers. I, I'll ask a really serious question, and somebody will pass gas. And I'm just like, I mean, it's like I, I don't even know what to do. But car rides, downtime, I got the deepest conversation with my kids just driving around cleaning out the garage as the things in their heart begin to come out and I'm able to apply the gospel to them. Perhaps even more importantly, the home is where kids see the gospel lived out and learn to, be- learn to believe in its power. There's a, a statement I heard C.J. Mahaney make years ago that it haunts me. Oh, I get chills even when I just I, I read it now. Effective teaching involves explaining to our children what they are already observing in our lives by example. Your kids are going to learn to believe the gospel not by how well you articulate it, Not by how good the quality of your devotions are, but more how they see you treat your spouse. Here's the haunting question for me. Do my kids see in me the unconditional love, the graciousness, the tenderness, the faithfulness, the forgiveness, and the gentleness that makes them naturally say, well, of course the gospel is true. What are your kids learning about the gospel from your marriage? And by the way, before you collapse into a big pile of despair like I feel like doing. It's like a large part of that is simply learning to apologize often because I'm not perfect. My kids aren't perfect and my kids don't need so much a perfect daddy to emulate. They need a savior to hope in. Therefore, my greatest role for them is, is helping them meet my savior rather than it is trying to get them to admire my fake righteousness. So I'm trying as hard as I can to apologize often in front of them. And I will often say to them, mommy and daddy, we are sinners. We're broken sinners. But Jesus loved and he saved daddy and he can save you. You should hope in him. Let me just say this too here. If your family is what you might consider to be a bigger than average mess, I got one word of encouragement for you. Almost 201. Study it. Almost 201. The great families in the Bible were extremely screwed up. I mean, Genesis reads like a circus of dysfunctional favoritism, incest, betrayal, adultery, murder plots against the in-laws, visitation to prostitutes, and you're not even out of the book of Genesis yet. Now, honestly, y'all, that has to be intentional. The very father of our faith, Abraham, one time in an attempt to curry favor with a government official, told that government official that his wife was his sister and that that official could sleep with her if he wanted. He did that not once, but twice. That is Jerry Springer kind of dysfunctionality. Yet God wrote a beautiful story in all of that and he brought Jesus out of it. More important than you having the perfect stock photo family picture is God writing the story of grace through your family. And if God chose dysfunctional families to introduce to us the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus to the world, then he can bring Jesus through your messed up family also. So the point is the home is a key place and we got to prioritize relationships in the home. I've heard it said, and I even heard, uh, I think John Stone Street said it earlier up here tonight, or maybe not these exact words, but this concept. That we Americans, we're going the exact opposite way. Our goal in parenting is we want our kids, I've heard it said, to be experience rich, even if it means they're relationally poor. So we'll make sure they get to all the places that other kids are going to and have all the experiences and go to all the classes and participate in all the extracurricular things. Experience, 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 even if it means they're relationally poor with their church and with their family. 
You really success in parenting and what, 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 what produces a more healthy child is when they're relationally rich, even if it means they're experience poor. Kevin DeYoung in his book Crazy Busy points to the work of a professor at George Mason University, a guy named Brian Kaplan. Uh, this is fascinating to me. Who conducted extensive studies on, bio, follow this, biological twins adopted by different families where one family was really into extracurricular activities and the other family was not. That's a really narrow subset of, you know, who you're going to study, right? But listen to this. This is a game changer. What their research showed is that all the things that parents had their kids involved in had little to no effect on what the child achieved or how they turned out, whether we're talking about academics or sports. As long as the home environment was stable, the kids really became exactly the same. What the study did show, however, was that in the homes where they were hyperactive about this extracurricular stuff, Kaplan said, kids suffered from a secondhand stress. He compared it to secondhand smoke, where they're not actually stressed, but their parents are stressed, and their parents are stressing them out by the stress they just talk about things in their schedule with. All the busyness we are pouring into their lives to add value are actually crushing both them and their relationship to us. The point is, do not freak out about having them involved in everything. You prioritize relationships in the home because that's where the the soil, the gospel flourishes. The other garden is the church. Joyner points out, use him again, that the kids need somebody beside their parents who can speak into their lives, who can reinforce what is being said. Sometimes they need simply to be able to confide in an adult who is not their parents. Listen to this. Teens who had at least two adults from church make a significant investment in their lives were more likely to keep attending church than uh, when they got into college than those who didn't. Those who had at least five or more adults spend time with them personally were near, nearly twice as likely to continue on in church in college years. There was just five adults in the church that had an investment of some kind in that child's life. Children need more than just a family that gives them unconditional acceptance and love. They need a tribe that gives them a sense of belonging and significance. Bottom line, again, I'd love to spend more time here, but children are to be raised in the larger community of faith. At our church, we've really tried to be intentional with this. Um, at our, our families tried to be really intentional with this. We moved into a neighborhood, um, uprooted where we were living and moved into a neighborhood with two other families in our um, church, not into one house with two other families, but into a neighborhood with two other families. Um, they had kids about our same age just so that we could do life together. We have pursued strategic relationships with other parents to give our kids other people who can speak into their lives and be, key moment, be at key moments in their lives, whether ceremonies or coming-of-age types of trips or, or just normal life stuff, because we want them to have those kinds of relationships. Proverbs thirteen twenty: he that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Notice it's not he who listens to wise men, but the one who walks with wise men. Kids will become like their community. I always tell our church, your kids will become the average of their five closest friends. You want to know what your kid's going to be like, just take their five closest friends, average them out, that's what they're going to be in a few years. You show me their friends, I'll show you their future. What's, I think, disturbing for me as a pastor is, I see parents who are involved in the church, but their kid's real community is dance or baseball or their public school, and we get all kinds of people in public school and, and, and bless that, but that's where they belong, and then they're a visitor at church. 
Your kids will be in a community somewhere and there'll be a visitor somewhere. And I want to make sure that the community they belong to is the community of God's people because that is the soil in which God grows. And that's what Psalm 127, that's why it was said to the whole group. Number four, our hope in parenting is God's grace. Let me read it to you once more. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, oh, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. I love this principle. What is the sign in this verse that you are beloved by God? Sleep. I mean, based on that, many of you look, look like you're beloved by God right at this very, very moment. So look, listen, here's the thing. If you're sleeping, who's watching over the city? If you're not the one that's up at the wee hours, then who's the one that's plowing the crops and making the crops grow? You see the question he's asking? Well, if the watchman's asleep, who's watching the city? If the farmer's asleep, who's plowing the ground? The answer that the psalmist is giving you is, God is. You're supposed to do what you can do and then just leave the rest to God. I was reading this article by a guy who said that he developed this problem where he would go to, he was in charge of a lot of things at work, and so he'd just find himself worrying about it all night long. He said, uh, he said, I said so, so there's a, uh, this service where you can get a, a virtual assistant in India. You pay the, your, your amount and they, they do work for you. He said, so, you know, their daytime is our nighttime. He said, so... He says, uh, every night at 5 o'clock, I would send my virtual assistant in India a list of things that I was worried about. And I would say, I don't want to worry about these at home tonight, so I'm going to ask if you would worry about them for the next 12 hours. And then just, you know, just the, that way, I don't, I, somebody's worried about them. I don't have to worry about them. And he said, she did it. Every morning at like 6 a.m., I get an email that says, hello, Mr. So-and-so. Just want you to know that I worried terribly about these five things from five o'clock now till now. And so now I'm giving them back to you so that you can start worrying about them again. He said, I don't know why that helped, but it just really helped me. Um, I read that and I thought, well, that's kind of funny, but um, what was that service again? No, I, I read that and I thought, I thought, I actually have that in God because God tells me, do what you do, do it the best you know how to do it. And then guess who's the one that's gonna stay up watching over the children who's going to get up, making sure that they become what they've become. It's me. That principle applies in a lot of places in our lives, but it's interesting that it appears in this psalm in regards to parenting. Here's an awesome thought. God cares more about our children growing up right than even we do. It's hard for me to imagine, but God has more invested in my children. He has his blood. I've never shed my blood for my children. They're his kids. They're not mine that I'm asking him to bless. They're his that he died for, that he gave to me. It's simply on loan to me. That means I can work my hardest and then go to sleep, metaphorically and physically, entrusting God with my family. It is faith, not technique, that is the most important element in parenting. I've been reflecting a lot recently about how necessary faith was in the New Testament for the release of Jesus' power. And think of it with Peter. When Peter was trusting in Jesus, he literally was walking on the water. And the moment that he stopped trusting Jesus, he started to sink. His technique didn't change. I'm tempted as a theologian to say, well, was that God's will for him to sink? I, and then you just say, I don't know. But the point was, when he was trusting Jesus, he was walking. And when he wasn't, he was sinking. And I've been thinking about how little, as a parent, I lean on the grace of God. Here's how I realized it. A couple years ago, two summers ago, I had our staff at our church. Um, 
We took a spiritual retreat, and I had them rewrite Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is uh, the psalm where uh, the psalmist walks through the history of Israel, and after every major event in Israel's history, they just put the phrase, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. And it just reads like this refrain over and over and over again. And I said, what I want you to do is write out your life. I want you to write out kind of the major points in your life, and after every single one, write, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then I want you to read it out loud. So I went back and I was doing it myself. And when I got through with this thing and I started to read it aloud, I was overwhelmed with this realization that all the strategic spiritual moments in my life were not orchestrated by my parents. I told you earlier, my parents were, were very important to me. They loved God. They first demonstrated the gospel to me. But almost all of these big strategic moments where my life changed, they weren't the ones that are orchestrating them. God was the one that was orchestrating them. And then I had this thought, I'm like, if God was faithful in my life to show me mercy, won't he be faithful in their lives just like he was in mine? And then I had this other thought, and this is kind of a strange one, but I thought, and I felt like it was put in my heart, like, what if I died? What if I knew tomorrow I was going to die? And I thought, well, if I died, well, how, you know, I felt like the Lord was saying, what would you feel, how would you feel about your kids? Would you trust me, even if you were gone? that I would somehow make up for the absence if your life was just tragically taken out. I would make up and I would supply what they were missing in you. And I said, well, of course, I know that you would. And then it was like the, I felt the Holy Spirit ask me, well, if you could trust me with your absence, can't you trust me with your presence in their lives? Can't you still trust that I will be the one that is working grace in their life? Can't you lean on me and suddenly... I felt like I was walking on water as a parent. Elise Fitzpatrick in her book on parenting, Give Them Grace, she talks about how many books on parenting, Christian books we read, that essentially guarantee success in parenting if you just follow these biblical points. That's kind of the, you know, what makes them sell. However, she points out that she's like, God was a perfect father, and a third of the angels and the only two humans he ever created both rebelled against him. Do you really feel like you're going to be able to out-technique God? She says the really dangerous problem with this thinking, though, is that it leads to thinking there's a foolproof way of parenting. And that keeps us from the one thing we most need. And that is to cast ourselves in the mercy of God to work in our kids' lives, which is the one thing that God responds to. You foolish Galatians, not you, but you foolish Galatians, do you really feel like you started by faith, and you're going to perfect it by the flesh. You feel like you were saved by faith in God's grace, but when it comes to bringing salvation and growth to your kids, oh, you're going to do that through the flesh. It's a technique that you need. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Why? If, you, if the Spirit came by the hearing of faith, then the Spirit moves in you by the continued release of faith. God's power is not released through great technique. It's released through hope in His mercy. You see, Psalm 127, when you peel back all the layers, is about trusting in God's grace. The gospel is that God's grace, God accepts us, not because we're perfect, but because we hoped in his grace. In the same way, God does not give you success as a parent because you do everything right, but it's because you hope in his grace. God saved us when we were his enemy. Now that we are his friend, his son, his daughter, is he not going to help us when we lean in upon him? He who did not spare his own son will he not also freely with him also give us all things. My hope in my marriage is not in the marriage techniques I've mastered, as important as those are. My hope in my parenting is not in my parenting techniques. My hope is the same hope as that father who brought his little girl 
Well, the woman with the issue of blood says, I've tried all the doctors and I've tried all the techniques and nobody can change it. But I believe that you can. And he says, if you believe, all things are possible to those that believe. So trust him. Trust him. His love never fails and the well of his grace never runs dry ever. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are like a heritage from the Lord. They are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Would you bow with me and let's pray. I thank you, God, for your wisdom and your word. I thank you most of all, God, for your promises. I sense, God, the reality of them right now. God, that you're saying, lean in on me. Touch the hem of my garment. Call out to me. Bring to me. Your child that is broken. And say, Lord, I know that you care. God, don't pass me by. Son of David, don't pass me by. God, our hope is in your mercy. Our hope is not in our technique. God, give us the ability to raise children, to rear children in your power for the purpose of the mission in the home and in the church and with our hearts fully convinced, fully leaning in on God's grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. To subscribe and find more event messages, visit ERLC.com and join us next week for a message from Trip Lee.